Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. This is an interview I did with the Cultural Hall podcast. This is a, a collab episode. That uh, I don't think he's on YouTube. This is a, the Cultural Hall podcast and Patreon account. Uh, that's a good friend uh, of mine, and and this is a collaborative episode, so I'm releasing it here on this YouTube channel, um, Strangers in Jerusalem. So please, if you like this this episode and the other episodes, uh, subscribe, press the like button, help us get to 500 subscribers. We've just reached 400, and so we're small but growing, so I appreciate your support, and I hope you like this interview and this episode. is time for another episode of the cultural hall and uh excited to welcome back trevin hatch now trevin you were on uh, an episode a while back i want to say maybe 100 200 episodes ago where it was you and a co-author uh talking about not necessarily a wholly different subject but pretty different from what we're going to get into today so welcome back thanks yes uh, fun to be here yeah that was with leonard greenspoon he he was the I forget the episode number, but yeah, he's the Jewish Studies Chair at Creighton. We did an episode on a book that we edited on Latter-day Saint and Jewish. Uh, yeah, it's basically a dialogue and kind of an interfaith thing where we had Jewish scholars and Latter-day Saint scholars participate. So yeah, that was a fun episode. Yeah, and excited to have you back solo this time so you don't have to share with the mic with anyone but me. Uh, cool. but, but you reached out because... And I think that this is great. You know, this year in uh, Come Follow Me, this year being 2023, we're learning about the New Testament. And I think that people are renewing a focus on um, on studying more about the Savior. Uh, you know, a recent episode that we had where we talked with uh, Tom Waymont about, uh, you know, his retranslation or translation of the New Testament for Latter-day Saints and uh, and being able to kind of study the new testament in different eyes looking at, at at things in different ways and i think that you're going to add an interesting piece to this conversation as we talk about the Masa the 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 savior the, the savior mm -hmm. or the messiah uh and so i appreciate you being willing to take the time and i think maybe we start just to get to know briefly about you who who are you why would people you know, want to know what you what your thoughts are on the Savior about the Messiah? Just very quickly, give that brief on board, and then we'll get into this. Cool. Okay. Yeah, in one or two minutes, I uh, I started at BYU way back in. That's not way back, but it's two thousand five, and I, I left to do my a lot of my degrees, my graduate degrees in Jewish studies, and because of a strange uh, circumstance, I ended up doing like four degrees. Uh, I got a master's degree in Jewish studies where I focused on the rabbinic period, the rabbinic literature. So there's the literature right after Jesus and also the history during the uh, Jewish history during the time of Jesus. And then I went on to do two doctoral degrees. I'm still finishing one, but both of those were related to Judaism. One of them was in, in what is essentially sociology of religion. And I wrote my dissertation on um, American Jews. And then I, I started another doctoral degree at the Spurtis Institute in Chicago, actually with Leonard Greenspoon. And in there, I, I went back to the biblical and early Jewish period, the literature, um, the context, the history of that time period. So then I came to BYU and uh, I got a job in the library, a faculty position in the library as the ancient scripture 
and Middle East and, and Jerusalem Center librarian. And, uh, and I also teach uh, once in a while, a couple times a year, I teach in religious education. So the topic that we're dealing with today, I've published on it a great deal. I love this topic of messianism or messianic expectations. I published a book in 2019 called um, A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. This was not a Latter-day Saint press. This was a Christian uh, religious studies press. So I, it was interesting when I sent that proposal in, I, I wasn't sure they were going to take a Latter-day Saint author. And I, pro I proposed it as, uh, you know, I said, there's a lot of people engaging in this historical Jesus scholarship, including Catholics, Muslims, atheists, Jewish, you know, Jewish scholars. But no Latter-day Saint scholars have participated outside of BYU. And so they took it. And that's that's what the book is about. It's situating Jesus within his context. And so that's that's what I do. And if I put one more shameless plug in, that is <laughs> because I do this for free. I'm going to put this shameless plug no, in. No, it's not uh, shameless. It's shameful. I love it. Bring all the shame, all the shame. I always forget this. And everybody's like, why did you not mention that? And I, I lead tours. I run tours, a little tour company, sacredspacetours.com. And we only go to Israel. And I've got me and a few colleagues, myself and a few colleagues who have spent a great deal of time there. And and uh, so we we lead tours. So check out check out the website. Come sign on with us for 2023 or 2024. Nice. Are, and uh, just since you brought that up, are most of those tours like 10 days? Are they a couple of weeks? What, what do you think is the good amount of time to spend in the Holy Land where you're not going you know, oh my gosh, this is so long, or, oh, we didn't get to see anything while we were there. What's that sweet spot of time? The sweet spot, and this is what, uh, I guess, part of my plug, I guess, is that uh, some of my research interest is pilgrimage and tourism studies. So there's a lot of tourism companies out there that just kind of throw a bus together, and they put people on, they send you there, and they pick whatever LDS guide, even if they don't have any knowledge base, and you get hooked up with a local guide, and they rush you around. Uh, my mother-in-law went a couple years ago and they were they packed it in from 7 a.m. to 7 at night, rushing people through to the tourist traps. And I found in a lot of my research on what makes a tour and what makes kind of a pilgrimage is this, this sweet spot of about 10 touring days. Okay. Especially in Israel, because then we don't skimp on Jerusalem or the Galilee. You know, we don't take three buses and pack people in. It gets takes forever to get people through the restrooms. Anyway, so it really is a, a thoughtful, carefully planned tour experience that is based on best practices and some of the research by tourism uh, scholars. So, is it something you know? There's the there, there's church history tours and these tours to the Holy Land as well. Uh, it's interesting. I didn't know that we were going to kind of get into this for a second. But do you do you feel like for a lot of those things that there is uh, a personal preparation that needs to occur in order for people to have the best experience or could someone like me, you know, I, I've I've read a little bit about it. I've talked to people about it, but it's just kind of a bucket list item that I'm like, you know what? I want to go to the Holy Land one day. Would I be better suited to study a bunch before I go? Or would it be, you know, in the space of like a tour of yours, would I be just fine to go, you know what? I got 10 days. These are the 10 days. I may not get 10 days again. Let's do it. And I'll just go that way. That's a good question. In some tours, you can just go some tours and you can do a little research. If you want the more devotional kind of gospel doctrine type thing, you can just go and you'll just be entertained and see this, see the highlights. But what our niche at Sacred Space Tours is that we want to be we want to educate people. They spend a lot of money and they go there and we don't want to give them just another gospel doctrine lesson. 
And so for our tours, it's probably best not to study a whole bunch. You don't necessarily have to study a whole bunch, but it'd be nice to get a hold of some resources, review the timeline, the, hmm. the Israelite timeline all the way to the period of Jesus, know the difference between the Herods and just some basic stuff, get some charts and just kind of orient yourself into the timeline and maybe a tad into the geography. But um, it's not uh, so essential, but yeah, it, it helps. Yeah, but I like that. And one thing that you indicated too is, and I'd sort of laugh about this when I see some of these pop up either on social media or other mediums where uh, I'll see someone that's leading a tour and I go, you know what, it'd be fun to hang out with that individual, but I'm not sure that they know anything about which they are going to visit. I just kind of go, it's the hanging out with that person that they're selling, not the knowledge of that person. So this is definitely an opportunity to grow and to learn and all those things. So I'll make sure that there's a link for that in the show notes for this episode. So if people are interested, they can kind of find it out, price it out and see when you guys head over there. Uh, I, I want to start into this, um, this conversation really basically, uh, we we use and throw around the term Messiah a lot, and I don't know uh, I don't know that we really get it, or or that we understand its meaning. Right? We say you know Jesus is the Messiah, but it, are, are there other messiahs? Let's just start real basic. Give me give me Messiah one hundred and one. Okay, yeah, that's fine. In fact, today at five, I teach a class, and this is it. Just how so happened that this is the topic for today of messianism, messianic expectations, and we'll kind of go through the history from the earliest, you know, into earliest time into the, into the time of Jesus. So essentially you have these terms like Messiah or Mashiach in Hebrew, and some people are aware of this, others might not be aware that Christ, Christos is the Hebrew version. It's, I mean, it's the Greek version of that Hebrew word Messiah. Both of them mean anointed one. And they refer in the earliest days, uh, you know, way back into the Iron Age, Israelite Iron Age, that is just the king. That's a the king, King David, the Israelite king, and other ancient Near Eastern kings are called anointed one, anointed by the gods or God, depending on your belief system. And even that in, in some Near Eastern nations, even in Israel, you're called God's son. So we find this in the Psalms. The king is kind of adopted into the family of God. Uh, scholars, just, they're still trying to wrestle with whether the people believe that the the king or the pharaoh or whatever was an actual deity or they were adopted into the into the family of gods you know they took on divine qualities but that but the earliest days we don't see this divine figure or supernatural powers coming to save a group of people this is just israel's king who's been anointed and so we see in isaiah king cyrus of persia is mentioned as a mashiach an anointed one and in there there's some things that he does and he, you know, a lot of those are uh, militaristic kind of things like, he, you know, so that kind of brings a, an idea of a, a king who's the military leader and he's going to come fight for Israel or lead Israel. OK, so by the time we get into the, per the Persian period after the Babylonians, if everybody's kind of orienting themselves in Persian and into the Greek period, as we move through, we start to see an embellishment or a different understanding of a Messiah where it carries on this much more elaborate uh, divine presence. Okay, and so by the time you get to Zechariah and some of those later books, you have this figure coming. They don't always call him the Messiah. Sometimes it's called something else, the Son of Man, or, uh, a different, or it's not given a title. Who will come, step down on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will split in two. So, you know, the, there's an earthquake there. And um, so he's moving in the clouds of heaven. 
uh, like by the time you get to Daniel, Daniel's pretty late. You have Daniel seeing a vision of one who looks like a son of man. Okay, so in the in our faith community, we mention we we say the term son of God a lot, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and occasionally we'll say son of man, but people get confused. And so in in Christian tradition, usually when someone gets up and they, they give a sermon, or in our faith tradition, if we bear testimony, we give a testimony of our beliefs. We'll say, I know that Jesus is the son of God. Okay, well, that's interesting because a son of God, God's son from the Psalms, that's a human, like an earthly king, you know, mm -hmm. son of God. It was the son of man who took on these divine powers. So like in Daniel, he sees a vision. Son of man just means human being. It's bar enosh in Aramaic. You know, just Ezekiel is called son of man. Like an angel comes, he says, son of man, human being. Okay, so when Daniel sees this vision, he, he sees he's up in the clouds and he sees one who looks like a son of man. In other words, he sees this divine figure who looks like a human being. And then it tells what he's going to do. He's going to come in the clouds of heaven. He's going to rule and reign. And there's all these things that he's going to do. And by the time we get a few centuries later to the century before Jesus, we get the book of Enoch. And the book of Enoch says that it takes that language and says this person will come. And it, it changes it from one who looks like a son of man, and it just calls him the son of man, right? Like the ultimate human being. Uh, you know how, so you can see the development of how this word turned into a proper, like a proper name, like son of man. Okay, so that's, I'll, I'll teach that to my students this evening because it's important. So when, when Jesus is going throughout his ministry and people are asking Caiaphas, are you a son of God? And he's talking, and then he responds, he's talking about a son of man and what all that means. And we can kind of, depending on the, the situation that Jesus is in, you got these words, Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God being thrown around. And I'll just make one more point, and that is these might have been different traditions, the Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, um, or a combination of them. But by the time we get to Jesus, they've all kind of merged into each other. And there's this kind of, I, I don't know about confusion or just different traditions about what this grand person, this hero savior is going to do you know, this Davidic king. So that's kind of the origins and how it, uh, how it, how it develops and evolves. So when, so when they're asking, uh, you know, as we read, you know, uh, they're asking of the savior, are you son of man or son of God? Is that similar to other parts where um, they're essentially just trying to trap Jesus in his words to have him claim to be something that he isn't? Is, is, am I understanding that right? Yeah. So there's, there's different uh, circumstances where he's with the authorities and they, and we can get into this a little bit later as we kind of walk through it, but they kind of, they're on high alert for anyone who's going to come claim to be king. Um, so let's let, how about we put a pin in that I'll and then we'll it. back up a little bit because when we get there, I'll, I'll talk about the significance. If I forget, if I'm sort of rambling about something else, bring us back that pin and say, we were going to talk about um, what a situation was like for Jesus to come in and what the authorities were worried about with this term Messiah or son of God. And why he would have been killed. Anyway, we'll, we'll probably cover that. But so you mentioned you mentioned that there's sort of the transition from from where it was to uh, where it was then just immediately before um, before the savior was born and then comes. Is it is it crafted by um, other types of the culture or religious teachings of that time, or what made it go from something very different a few centuries before? to what the expectation was at the time that Christ came. So all kinds of different, yeah, there's different factors. It could be uh, just the uh, 
I guess the embellishment or the evolution of what people need and want, because as the, in the earliest days, you just have your king. But then as the Davidic, they're expecting this Davidic king to come mm -hmm. because in second Samuel seven, God command, like God, he has this covenant with David and he says that your uh, monarchy, like your throne will be everlasting and there's going to be a Davidic throne. And so that's not happening. Like there's all these corrupt kings and then they're de deported, you know, uh, exiled into Babylon, and then they come back and they're waiting for this Davidic king. And as there's more oppression and poverty and oppression, you know, oppression from, from, from different nations, they're thinking like, we need somebody, this is going to take a miraculous event for somebody to come and overthrow Israel's enemies. So that's one possibility where you just have generation after generation for, for several centuries where it just kind of gets embellished. And another, another thing is it could just be Different traditions pop up for Latter-day Saints. It's a, it would be a revelatory thing where, you know, Zechariah and others are receiving revelation on about uh, who this figure is. Maybe he's more divine than we thought. Um, but that's just kind of how it goes along. And there's other cultural. There's always cultural influences. There's the Greek, there's the, the pagan, you know, the classic authors and that classic life, the pagan lifestyle, the Greco-Roman lifestyle where, you know, Caesar's called the son of God and, you know, they're God's son. And there's all these other factors that play into it that might cloud and distort the issue. Uh, the reason why I say cloud and distort is because by the time Jesus comes, I don't think he likes the term Messiah. And hmm. if you read through, you know, if you read through, in fact, as we get to that, let me just, I, I printed out a list because I couldn't remember. I've got this little list here. When I, when I went through my book, I scoured all the, the Jewish literature between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and New Testament, all this literature, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I came up with a list of every expectation in the generations leading up to Jesus of a Messiah. Like, what's this guy supposed to do? And here, let me just yeah, take it off for you a little bit. And not every author lists all of these, but they're kind of peppered throughout the Dead Sea Scrolls and all this Jewish literature before you get to the Gospels. So this person would be is a pre-existent figure with some divine qualities. All the people would worship him. He will be a king. He would restore the Davidic dynasty. His kingdom would be everlasting. He would have authority over the nations. He would lead Israel. He would judge the wicked and overthrow Israel's uh, foreign enemies. He would be associated with righteousness. And then in the Dead Sea Scrolls, only in there, it says he will heal the sick, restore sight to the blind, and raise the dead. There's one author that kind of puts these miraculous to help benefit humanity, not just be a political figure. And so with all of that, you have... By the time Jesus comes and people are wanting a king who's going to overthrow enemies and is going to be this militaristic person, you can kind of see where Jesus steps into this world where he's like, okay, I don't want any part of all, like all of that baggage. Uh, the reason why I say that is because if we list all the places in the Gospels where he can claim to be the Messiah, he hedges or backs away. And some of the examples are like when Nathaniel comes to him and says, hey, I, I saw you. Um, are you that person who's going to be, you know, the anointed one or whatever? And he says, how did you know this? He said, you'll see much greater things than these. So mm -hmm. instead of just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm totally, I'm the, I'm the Mashiach. He, he kind of like hedges and gives a little bit of information. Another time is when he is with the Samaritan uh, woman, right? At the well, mm -hmm. nobody else is there. She's not a Jew. She's not a member of his group. And she, she tells him we're waiting the Messiah. And he says, I am he. Uh, Okay, so that's that's one instance. The other instance is with Caiaphas. Again, here's a uh, 
non-Jesus follower alone in an isolated setting. And he says, are you the Messiah and the son of God? Are you the son of God, the Messiah? And he, in one gospel, he answers it and says, yes, I am. That's Mark. Um, and then in Matthew, he kind of, he starts to hedge. By the time you get to Matthew, he's saying, uh, if I answer, you won't, you know, you, you won't engage in a debate. So even if I answer you, actually, I think this is in Luke. You won't have a discussion. So even if I tell you the answer, you're not going to believe it. And you're not going to uh, have this discussion with me. So I'm not going to answer it. So he's out. But between Gospels, he's, you're already kind of seeing this struggle with the, the Gospel writers to try to figure out when he claimed to be the Messiah and when he didn't. Um, in John, I think it's John 6, it says in one place that people tried to grab him. They, 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 they got a hold of him and they were going to force him to be their king, to take him and force him to be their king or the Messiah. And he fled away from there and he says he fled away and he says, I'm not I'm not doing this. So um, then there's other instances where Peter says, you know, you're going to. Well, OK, there's, there's some places where he does a uh, healing, like he heals somebody and then he tells his disciples, don't go. Don't tell anybody. Just keep it between us. And then the scripture actually says in some of those places, they became more zealous and they went and told everybody and his fame spread. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that um, we're not saying that he didn't believe he was the Messiah. But that word had, be, had become so convoluted or, I guess, so much baggage dumped onto that, what that person was supposed to do. I can imagine him not wanting to be associated with it because it would eventually lead, end up with your death. You'd, you'd be killed. Um, Hard pause so anyway, real quick. Because uh, something that, that sort of, uh, this is going to take us out of the context of what we're talking about, but it is something that's curious and I think is directly related, is that in our day and time, it seems like um, we as a church, we sort of lean against the term prophet um, when we talk to President Nelson. I mean, certainly we would call him a prophet uh, within church confines, but it seems like when we, when, when we take it in, in kind of a bigger way, we sort of hedge a little bit against... Uh, a prophet, right? It's the president of the church. He's the the leader. He's, you know, some of those things. Do you think that that's a similar kind of thing? Because if he, and I don't think that he really shies away from it, but there is, there is something tangible here that, that because people have certain expectations of what a prophet would do, look like, be all of those things that we kind of, we kind of take that a different way. That's a great analogy. That's probably, you're probably right. And because just thinking off the top of my head, there are places, there are times where he's introduced to a non-LDS, non-Latter-day Saint audience, and he's introduced as a world faith leader, world world faith leader, or president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And mm -hmm. so, I, yeah, you're right. I don't think he's ashamed of it or that we're ashamed of it, but there's probably a lot of baggage. And when people hear the word prophet or this guy talks to God, some people just tune out and they roll their eyes like, oh, here's another guy who, you know, claims to be a prophet. You're, you're probably right. I Interesting. Right. Let's analogy. take a let's take a break real quick. When we come back, I want to pick this conversation uh, right up uh, with uh, why Jesus was killed and what this uh, Messiah has to do with the fact that he was killed and, and and everything that plays into that. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the cultural hall. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, I would love it if you have enjoyed this or any recent episode that you tell a friend about it. Even if you think, oh, I know that they know about the Cultural Hall already, maybe they don't. 
And I would love it if you would share an episode, a favorite episode, or just share the feed with them. And if you don't have any friends, that's fine. I mean, I would encourage you, new year, new resolution, make some friends. But you can take a moment and leave a review. That way you're impacting people that you don't even know saying, hey, I love this show. This is something that has helped my life, has taught me things that I would have never expected. Uh, you can find The Cultural Hall wherever you're getting this episode and leave a review, hopefully. Uh, it, it, make it a positive one. Keep the negative stuff to yourself. We don't need it. Now, uh, Trevin, let me ask you this. As you kind of sent over some things to sort of guide our conversation, uh, you mentioned that uh, why was Jesus killed? Blasphemy? Was it because he was righteous? Was it because people um, felt threats to power? So let's get into that a little bit. Okay. As a lead up to that, to Jesus, it's important to know some of the history that we get in Josephus and some of the other books. To sh and this really does shed light. In fact, if, if I was asked to give, you know, one lecture on to a certain group, they said you can choose any topic you want and, you you know, a broad biblical studies topic, it would be Messianism. And it would be this whole discussion because it's so important to understand what happens to Jesus and who did it and why they did it. There are... And I, deal, I detail in this in the book, but Josephus mentions at least a dozen, by name, a dozen figures from, from about 4 BC, BCE, whatever one we want to use. So that's right, right when about Jesus is born, mm -hmm. all the way through the Jewish-Roman War in the 60s. So we're talking 60 to 70 years. Just 12 individuals just in that time who claim to be or who seem to be like a messianic figure or messianic candidate meaning people were following this person as someone who could possibly be the Messiah. Every single one of those people that their followers were calling a king or that they stormed in Jerusalem, uh, some of them were militaristic, others were more spiritual people, but they were still using these, this king, like kingship language. They, a lot of them were killed. Most of them were chased by the Romans. So just a couple examples. Up uh, in the Galilee, just five miles from Nazareth, there's a, there's a city called uh, Sephorus or Sepphoris. There's a man named Judas who, right after Herod's death, Herod the Great in 4 BC, he sees this time as to protest Romans and the Jewish, uh, the Jewish aristocracy. And he takes over an armory or he like he gets this big this big army to fight Rome. And the Roman general Varus meets him, cuts him off uh, up in the Galilee, kills him and then slaughters a lot of his followers. And they line the 20 mile road from Sepphoris past Nazareth, all the way to the Sea of Galilee, 20-mile road, he lined it with 2,000 crucified soldiers or crucified uh, insurrectionists from Judas, right? 2,000 of them. So this is, you know, Jesus probably born around 4 BC because he was, you know, Herod died and then Jesus was born uh, right around that time. He's growing up in this, you know, up in that area, probably hearing these stories. And then it didn't stop. There's insurrectionists all the time. A couple others are, there's this guy, uh, the Samaritan, the prophet in the 30s, right after Jesus is dead. And he this guy comes to the Mount of Olives with hundreds of people. And he claims that on his command, he's going to go into the, the temple mount and the walls are going to fall. and He's going to take over the area. And that person, the Ro Romans heard about this. They ran up there. They killed 400 of his men. And he escaped out into the Judean wilderness. In fact, he's mentioned in Acts. And when Paul comes back to Jerusalem, people say, aren't you that that Egyptian guy, that prophet? And he says, no. That's not me. That wasn't me. And so there's some records about these types of people. Another guy named Theodos uh, in the 40s, he, he takes a group of people to the Jordan River and he says that on my command, it's going to be split in two and I'm going to lead this. OK, well, 
people who know this, when the Romans hear about this, they're like, okay, we know who did that in your tradition. It was this Joshua guy that led to a conquest. That's not happening. And he, they killed a bunch of people there. Okay. And so then there's all kinds of other people who, some people who put on royal purple, like garb and entered Jerusalem, uh, stormed the Roman barracks, even killed some people. And eventually they were taken to Rome and crucified. Uh, there was another guy named Jesus in the sixties, Jesus Ben Ananus. And he went, he went and challenged the chief priests and he used Jeremiah seven. You're, this is a, you're, this is a den of robbers. You know, you're doing the den of thieves that same speech that Jesus used and he's caught and he's cru uh, not crucified, but he's whipped. Hmm. He's whipped. And it says his back and his bones were showing his back was all torn up oh. and then they let him go. Right. So Rome is not going to deal with anybody who's claiming to build up this uh, insurrection against them. Okay. So this is the scene that Jesus comes into. He's up in the North. He's performing miracles. He's this man of peace, at least from what we can tell from the research. And when he comes to Jerusalem, they have a parade for him. Right, this, there's a, they're on the Mount of Olives. He gets on a donkey, which is what King Solomon did for his coronation in Second Kings, right, uh, or First Kings. He he rides down the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley to the water source, the the Gihon Spring, the Pool of Siloam, and that's where he's crowned king. So Jesus does the same thing. He's coming down. They've got palm branches, which is part of the ceremony, and they're yelling out, "Hail Messiah!" It's, you know, Jesus is the Son of David. And if you if you remember, who was it? following him that said, you need to be quiet. You got to tell your people to stop doing this. It was the Pharisees. Uh, we don't have time to get into this now, but I detail in three chapters of my book that I think Pharisees are very friendly to Jesus. There's a lot of data on that uh, you know, in Josephus and elsewhere, save a very few passages where he calls him a hypocrite. And there's a way to explain what that's all about. But these Pharisees know the situation and they're, they're not just saying, be quiet because we hate you guys and we're following you and we're trying to trap you and yap at your heels and give you problems no we are most likely some of these people are friendly to jesus and they're saying you got to be quiet because there's no way you can enter this political hub during passover like or leading up to passover screaming that you're the messiah you're not going to last two days you, you put it you're drawing a bullseye on your back and that's what happened i mean that jesus was killed okay because they storm into the east gate and a lot of this is from a lot of this is not just messianic but you you have passages in Zechariah and Ezekiel where it says that uh, this divine figure is going to come on the Mount of Olives, the, the Mount East of Jerusalem. He's going to return and his presence is going to enter through through the East Gate of Jerusalem. That's in Ezekiel. Right. And in Zechariah, it's an actual figure who's going to come on the Mount of Olives and then enter the East Gate. And so there's so much there where he goes to he goes to the Mount of Olives, gets a donkey, goes in there. And there's even a riot, you know, the temple, the temple tantrum, for lack of a better, you know, for a, sort of the tongue in cheek term, the temple tantrum. Like he, if he, if he really did that, or if there was any kind of a riot, that's the end. That's the end for Jesus, right? Because Pilate then takes him, and he's not going to stand for any of that. Anyway, if you have any questions, then I can kind of develop. Yeah, that. yeah. So, 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 kind of an odd question that came to my mind then, hearing as you talk about Jesus and and some of these other individuals as well. You, you refer to those people as maybe insurrectionists. Is it a is it a misnomer to say that Jesus was an insurrectionist? Is that is that blasphemy? Have I said something I shouldn't have said? Is that like is is that a fair estimation? A, a use of the word? I mean, he could have been seen as that um, because he obviously he was a man, a holy man, a man of peace. You know, through his teachings and what he's doing in Galilee. But if 
he comes to Jerusalem during Passover and he allows his disciples to even hint that he that he's the Messiah. And if he contended with the priest, because we he probably hated the priest because everyone hated the priest. Josephus said everyone there was so much corruption. And there's the Testament of Moses, this text that dates to about the 30s in the first century. There's the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's some other passages in Josephus. There's all these texts that that just pour on and on about the wickedness uh, of the temple establishment. They were extorting money. They were there were tax tax farmers that would go out and raise taxes and gather taxes and bring them back. And there were the, the office of high priest was bought by several people in the generations leading up to Jesus. Um, there's there's all kinds of they devour widows' houses. I mean, it, Josephus says there's untold sums of money in the temple treasury. And Pilate came in one time and says, we need more money for the treasury, more tax. And he threatened a whole bunch of people with daggers and like they they were not liked. And so if Jesus contended with the temple establishment, the chief priests, that's also a sign of insurrection. So whether he's carrying a sword and he's like leading a war, which he probably wasn't. Either way, you have a guy during Passover. And the reason why this is important is because the Passover is a time where pilgrims from all over the the Mediterranean, you know, the Mediterranean world come to Jerusalem. And what are they remembering? They're remembering the time that Moses freed them from a foreign oppressor. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's so all, all the kooky people, all the all, or all the zealots and, and the warriors, they would come out and they would go and they would get people stirred up. And we actually have I don't know if this stuff is interesting from Josephus, but there actually are three or four instances again from from about uh, so the first century BCE all the way up through the Jewish war, all of them during festivals. And what happened to, okay, I'll give you an example of some of them. One time the, the high priest, he takes water and he puts, he, he fills it up in the pool of Siloam and he, it's a, a procession during the feast of tabernacles. It's the mm-hmm. fall festival where they're praying for rain. They come up to the temple. He's supposed to dump it on the, the altar. And as the, as they pray for rain. instead, he's mad about something. And he, he chooses to be provocative and he dumps it on his foot to the side of the ark and, or to the altar. And he dumps it on his foot and everyone started throwing stones and the fruit that they had. There's this, this little fruit that, that's associated with that uh, time period. And they, they stone him. And then as a result, a whole bunch of people, tens of thousands of people were killed. Hmm. Uh, there, there's another time when there's and this is kind of a funny, sad, funny story. But there's a Roman soldier. This is in the 40s, like 10 years after Jesus died, also during Passover. There's and, and this is we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people milling around on the Temple Mount and the surrounding area. And Josephus says that this guy moons the crowd. And, and in the other place, he, he tells the story twice, one in the Jewish war, one in the history. He says he moons the crowd. And then the other instances, he said he just he, he exposed his privy members. Right. <laughs> so whatever it is, you've got this Roman soldier who does this. And he says he made this grotesque sound when he did. I don't know if he's grunting. I don't know what he's doing, but he, he makes everyone mad at this this holy you know, site, and there's this big revolt and rebellion, and 20,000 Jews end up getting slaughtered. Wow. All right, so this just over and over. And so Pilate, as the one in charge in the area, he takes, once he gets a hold of Jesus, he's not letting him go. You know, he's going to, there's no way that he would release a guy like that back into the public during Passover if he had a parade and people are yelling, you're, you know, the king. Uh, even if his, even if everything is verbal, even if he's attacking the chief priest verbally, um, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna end him really really quick. So that's some of the, that's why Jesus was killed. I mean, even in the plaque, the crime that they put above the, 
of the cross, that lists his crime, king of the Jews, hmm. not a blasphemer or something because he was a nice man who taught uh, nice things. It's not because he performed miracles. Uh, and it might not even be because people thought he might be divine or some sort of son of man, unless that was associated with the Messiah. Um, there's one scholar actually here at BYU who argued it's because he they thought he was a magician. And there's some, a few places here and there in the Gospels that like, hey, he's he's performing dark magic or whatever. He's a magician. Let's kill him. Um, I don't even I think it's kind of a stretch. It's pretty clear. All three Gospels, three I, might be all four Gospels above his cross, king of the Jews. This guy's mm. trying to be a king. That's his crime. You know, uh, there is so much in this, and I love, I could sit and listen to you talk about all this and, and you know, all these different things and things that I'd never even thought to even know about, let alone known about. Um, one of the things that, that you mention is about Judas and about the, and you air quote, betrayal of Judah, of Jesus by Judas. And I want to get into all that, but I want to, I want to take a quick break when we come back. Uh, if I'm understanding correctly, it is it is your um, what you are saying is that it wasn't a betrayal by Judas. It was something completely different. Is that fair? And then we'll get into you defending what that is as we come back. Yeah, to the that's, third block. that's my that's my position. I think we're too hard on Judas and uh, we'll lay it out. When you, OK, when you well, we're going to give Judas a break. Maybe we'll come back <laughs> and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, and we would love it if you would do so. You just go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. You get to see the amazing backdrop uh, that Trevin has as you get to see the videos. Uh, it, it's fun because when you move, Trevin, within the time that we've chatted, it adjusts the light. And so that's Jerusalem that's behind you, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the way that right. when you move... Uh, it, it makes it nighttime and then it makes it daytime. Oh, wow. and it's just That's the way the, cool. the computer <laughs> adjusts the light on it. It's It's been pretty fun. If you want to oh. see that, you can't see it if you're not a Patreon saint. Patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. So so we're too hard on Judas, huh? Yeah, yeah, I think we're I think we are. Um, this is a really fun discussion. Um, but what I there's so many details and so many things to think about. I actually printed out some some talking, some bullet points to, to trigger my memory. But so if you want to launch in, we'll just kind of, Let's I'll, just I'll go kind of after survey it. my position. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to have to change. We're going to have to change a lot culturally if you prove your point well, because, you know, we we call people a Judas if they're, you know, betraying someone or, you know, as some sort of insult. So if, he, if we've given him a, a short shrift, we may have to change all of that. But why? Right. Why, why, why? Why are we mistaken? Okay, here's my, my argument is basically that if, if Judas was like most other Jews, even Jesus's followers, it's hard for me to imagine why he would do what the Gospels say he did or what we think the Gospels are saying. And let me just give you a few examples of what what people are thinking about Jesus. So if you remember Peter, uh, Peter's asked or like the, all the apostles are asked, who um, do people say that I am? Like, what are they saying about me? And Peter says, you know, you're the son of the living God, you know, basically the Messiah. And then in that same discussion, Peter said, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I have to be, I'm going to be killed. Peter says, he's surprised. And he says, God forbid it, Lord. Like in somewhere, like God forbid that. Like, what are you talking about? You're not going to die. Are you crazy? And like, this is at the end of his ministry. And Peter's like, what are you saying? This is not going to happen to you. Okay. So then there's another time after Jesus dies where he comes back in disguise to the, uh, with the two people walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Mm -hmm. 
there, you know, and he says, he ta starts talking to him. He's like, okay, what are you, what are you guys, why are you guys so sad? And they said, where, where have you been? Our prophet was killed. And then they said, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. That's, that's in the gospel of um, Luke, Luke 24. Okay. So there's another example that for them, he's going to redeem Israel. He's the Messiah. So the fact that he died is why they're so uh, depressed. In sure. fact, that list, that list that I they rattled off about the messianic expectations, the one that you didn't hear me say, if you go back and rewind it and listen, the one you didn't hear me say is that Jesus or, or sorry, the Messiah would be killed. That's not there. There are some places where people kind of later exegetes, later interpreters say, OK, maybe Isaiah 53 or maybe Daniel 9 was referring to a dying Messiah. But those are really hard to make a strong case. And no one's talking about those passages. So it, it's, it's non-existent. This guy can't die, like mm -hmm. the one who's going to redeem Israel. Okay, another place is in, in uh, actually in Acts, right after Jesus comes to the apostles, after he's resurrected, they didn't, at least the record says, they didn't say, well, this is amazing. Jesus, you're here. How did this happen? You're, you're alive? They didn't say any of that. The very first thing they say is, is now the time that you're going to redeem Israel and like and restore the kingdom of Israel? Like that's their entire worldview. Mm -hmm. For for centuries, 600 years, this new king, this Davidic king, is not going to die. And then finally, a passage in First uh, Corinthians where Paul says that a dying Messiah or the death of Jesus specifically is a scandal on. That means so a scandal or a stumbling block. If you translate a stumbling block to Jews, he they know this. It's an absolute stumbling block. So if Judas had that view, why? Okay. Back up. If he had that view, I think it's possible that he turned to Jesus over on purpose so that because he knew that Jesus would win, you know, and it, we don't know all the details. It could be that Jesus, like when they go to the Last Supper, Jesus said, One of you is going to, it, the translation says betray, but the Greek word is paradokin. That word does not mean betray. I've got notes here from other scholars who have scoured the entire classical literature on what this means and there's not one place josephus himself uses this word 293 times this verb not one time can you translate it to mean something like a betrayal or something treacherous it just simply means to hand hand something or someone over okay and so jesus is one of you gonna hand me over and then in another gospel it says they all wondered which one is going to be the one to have to go to the temple priest temple establishment and hand him over Judas and Jesus says, Judas, you're going to be the one to do it. And when he gets up and leaves, there's no hint that there's any contention between Judas and the apostles or between Judas and Jesus. There's nothing. He leaves and it says they think he's going to give money to the poor or get food. OK, so we've tried to put all these pieces together and then we can see. Um, let me just mention a few other things. OK, in John, Jesus says, do quickly what you, what what has to happen, what you're going to do, do it quickly. We dump a lot of that into this, meaning that Jesus knew what he was going to do, uh, which makes this guy psychotic, okay? Because yeah. how um, either he thought Jesus is going to win, because I believe the same thing that Peter and everybody else is going to do. I, I want to bring him to the temple priest and end this, you know, the sort of a gladiatorial games where Jesus is going to win because mm -hmm. he's the Messiah, can't lose. It's either that or the guy is crazy because what he does is he goes, offers 100, 120 pieces of silver which is interesting because that's the price of a slave mentioned in Exodus. And it's a low price. It's 30 pieces of silver. It's not that much. In fact, that little bottle of ointment that was earlier used on the Mount of Olives when that woman came and took dumped a bottle of ointment on Jesus' feet. And she's 
this that bottle alone, based on some scholarship, is more than double the price of a slave. So it's mm-hmm. tiny little oil. In other words, maybe he could get a lot more for this insurrectionist. It's not very it's not very much money. It's about 120 days wages. Okay. And then what he does is when he he, he sells him off um, for the price of a slave, then right when things go south, he immediately freaks out, according to Matthew. And he comes back and he says, I have sinned against this man. The Greek word is homartano. It doesn't mean to sin against God or something like treacherous or evil. It just means to miss the mark or to misunderstand. Hmm. Okay, so if we take Matthew, you know, it also doesn't, you know, it doesn't condemn him. And then the other, and Mark is very, um, like, Judas fares very well in Mark. Okay, so these are some of the pieces that we start to put together. Another question we ask is, why did he do it? And one gospel says that he's greedy. That's Matthew. And we already show that that's kind of strange. Like if you're greedy, then you're going to go for a lot of money. You're not going to go for this poor, this little poor man's price and then freak out when things go south. Something's not adding up. Right. Then if we take Mark and Luke, it says that he was or maybe it's Luke and John, that he was overcome by a devil. Okay, that doesn't sound, I mean, at least to my ears, maybe some people in our faith community are like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. He's overcome. Okay, well, if he's overcome by some evil spirit um, that's directing him for several days, I mean, how how does that look in real life? I mean, again, is he crazy? And they think it's something's going on that doesn't doesn't fit. Okay, he's just overcome by a devil. I think these are we know when the Gospels are written. These are later examples, uh, later uh, wrestling. These are wrestling with what happened to this guy and why did he do it? Okay. and so then another, so those gospels don't agree on sure. his motive. Yeah. They also don't agree on what he did. They also don't agree on his fate. Okay, so what happened to him after? Matthew says that he freaked out and he hung himself. Okay, um, the other gospels don't mention anything. The book of Acts says he went and he fell. He, he stumbled and fell and his bowels gushed out on the ground. Now, the second century author Papias or Papias, however you want to say it, says that he got hit and killed by a chariot. Hmm. And in the Gospel of Judas, it said that he was excommunicated and stoned by the apostles. In other words, we have 100 years or so, maybe 70 years of Christian without throughout the Christian communities. There's no unified understanding of what this guy did, what whatever happened to him anyway. It, you know, it, he could have been shamed. He could have been depressed, killed himself, or he could have been run out. But we don't. So in other words, we don't know why he did it. We don't know what he did and we, in, in terms of history, and we don't know what happened to him. Okay, so this is very um, suspect. So, okay. so, so, so pause real quick. What, what do we stand to gain from uh, reframing Judas, right? Because we, we, you know, we sort of joke around and it's like, we're too hard on Judas. Don't call somebody a Judas and, you know, all that. And, okay, I think it's interesting. I think you make a case that, you know, maybe he didn't right or maybe it was a thing you know just like uh when eve needed to partake of the fruit for any of us to be able to exist right it was a thing that had to occur in order for other things to be able to occur right and he in that way i guess would be a blessed character in history because he was a person who was strong enough of character to be able to do the difficult thing right but what what in in either our own scholarship or our own testimony or our own faith or, or however we want to frame it. What do you think we can gain from looking at this scenario that we typically have said, this is who this person is and that's it. And that's final. He's deceitful, you know, bloodthirsty, money hungry, whatever. Uh, and then being able to turn it and go, yeah, but maybe not. 
Yeah, it's a great question. And it comes down to, you know, it's not just some, um, you know, intellectual exercise, you know, some professor dealing with his little issue and, and making, you know, waves of something that, like, because we can't say for sure what was in his head. All we know is that the historical record does not add up. Mm -hmm. But it makes most sense to me if he understood Jesus as a Messiah. And so the, the crux of the matter is, like, what does this matter? It matters because when we approach scripture, whether it's Laman and Lemuel, Judas, Pharisees, the Jews in general, if we are not careful and we just take, you know, all of the Christian tradition and we're kind of sloppy with our interpretations, we are really contributing to a lot of this anti-Semitism because for centuries, Christians, early the early Christian fathers all the way through to Hitler, and Hitler it wasn't just a political um, problem that he saw with, with the Jews. It was a religious problem. The, the, the German church, the Institute of the German church, whatever it was called, used Hitler's um, speeches and ideology to demonize Jews like from the pulpit. So from that whole time period, we have people using the Judas story. They say, OK, not only Jews are evil and corrupt, but uh, the one person who was Jesus's disciple who happened to have the name Jew, Judah, come in Judas, Judas comes from Judah. The Jew was willing to kill him, and it says he's willing to kill him for profit. Okay, so and a part of my answer that might get a little complicated. Let me just uh, a couple of minutes here. Yeah, because one thing I forgot is some of the uh, not only the the anti-Semitism, but we also have to know what the Gospels are trying to do. Like we have to know what they are and what they're trying to do. And we have the Gospel of Matthew, who's borrowing, taking from the Old Testament all the time, nonstop, all throughout his gospel. And it's it just seems a little suspect that Judas, is that very story is patterned after David's general, okay? And in that story, this guy named, his, his name is Ahithophel. Ahithophel joined Absalom, David's son, in a conspiracy to overthrow David and take over Jerusalem. When that failed, David overcame that, and when he came back into Jerusalem, when that failed, Ahithophel killed himself. It says he the same Greek passages from the from the Septuagint, the Greek translation, is the same passage in the Gospels. Hmm. It says he went away and hung himself. Okay, so you're thinking, okay, one of David's right-hand men, Jesus is called the son of David, a Davidic king, right-hand man, does the exact same thing. In Acts, it's the other one. He stumbled and fell out. Uh, his vows fell out on the ground. This is another of David's generals, Amasa. Amasa joins the conspiracy as well, and when that failed, Another of his generals, Yoav, approaches Amasa, gives him a kiss, just like Judas kisses Jesus. He says, my master. And he takes a dagger and stabs him. And his bowels, it says his bowels gush out on the ground. These are, there's not coincidences. These authors are trying to show that Jesus is a Davidic king and his right-hand man betrayed him or did something the way they want to show, just like what happened to David. Uh, and the other thing is Joseph of Egypt. The only other person in scripture who's willing to sell his brother off for the price of a slave, it says the same thing, for profit, sell him for profit, was Judah. Okay, Judas is the name Judah. You got the, tw the 12 sons of Jacob. You got the 12 apostles. Jesus is there. It, you know, the, the two Judases in each scripture do the exact same thing. So you, you're dealing with some literary stories here. Um, and so we have to know what the Gospels are doing. It gets a little complicated, but we have to know what the Gospels are doing. And we also... As I return back to the other point, we don't know in terms of history, we can't line everything up. And so, yes, we don't actually know what happened to him. But for me, again, I'm going back to what makes the most sense if he believes either he's crazy 
he's psychotic, uh, or he believes that Jesus is Messiah, and therefore Jesus is like, I need to be delivered over, or Judas says, okay, I'm going to deliver him over, and he's, he's can't, he can't lose. And so we stand to, what we stand to gain is that a more, a, a more compassionate approach to scripture, so we don't demonize people's legacy. If this guy was a real guy, same with Laman and Lemuel, same with anybody else in scripture, and to just throw them out as the Jews did this, and Judas was a betrayer, uh, I think is disingenuous. But really, I use this as a vehicle to help my students understand the nature of scripture. It's not necessarily Judas himself that's the issue. It's using him as a as exhibit A for anti-Semitism and sloppy readings of scripture, um, and even sloppy translations, as the word does not mean betray. Several times without, uh, within our discussion, you've mentioned a book, and I want to make sure that people know what the title of that book is, and obviously we'll make a link for that in the show notes so that people, if they want to purchase that, can be able to to get that. And then I would also love it, uh, you know, you, you mentioned at the top of this, the shameless plug. This is the opportunity. Uh, in the olden days of the cultural hall, we would say, climb up on the Rami Umptum and tell people about where they can find you. But we would love to know if people, if you're doing online stuff, if you have a social media following, any of that kind of stuff, tell people where they can get more Trevin. Yeah, thank you again. I should have mentioned this before because I've got this little modest following of 400 subscribers, a little less than 400 subscribers on my YouTube channel and podcast. It's called Strangers in Jerusalem. It's a play on the book, A Stranger in Jerusalem. This is Strangers in Jerusalem YouTube channel and podcast. I'm putting a lot of content, lectures. Um, this episode here might be a collab episode, collaboration episode. I'll put it up there. So please check that out and get some of that content. Uh, also my book, A Stranger in Jerusalem, check that out. Um, but even next month, I, I, I don't know why I forget this. It's a big, it's a big deal. Uh, next month, Eric Huntsman and I, Eric Huntsman is currently the director of the Jerusalem Center, BYU Jerusalem Center. Both of us co-authored a book um, called Greater Love Hath No Man. And it's about Holy Week. It's a, the subtitle is A Latter-day Saint Guide to Celebrating the Easter Season. And what we wanted to do is give people a guide to walk through Holy Week. Because Latter-day Saints have a hard time. You know, we just kind of cruise throughout the week. We do an Easter egg hunt. We go to church. We yeah. have a nice meal. But we are, we're, we're not communing, uh, participating with the rest of the Christian world on, uh, with Holy Week. And so this book, each chapter is day by day, Palm Sunday, you know, all the way through Spy Wednesday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday. And we go through and we talk about um, what happened to Jesus traditionally about the through the Gospels, what happened on those days. We give some scholarship about that stuff. And we, and we give suggestions for Latter-day Saints on how they might develop traditions in each one of those days on what Christians have done for centuries. So, and then, of course, my tours, sacredspacetours.com. So that's that's all me. In a yeah, jeez. Busy, busy gentleman. And I love that though, the, the being able to join with the rest of the Christian world and being able to, to celebrate and having, you know, if nothing else, a greater understanding of what other people do and hopefully a, a greater appreciation and incorporation of the way that we can bring those things into our celebration, um, whether it be Easter or, you know, other parts of that Holy Week. Uh, Trevin, I know you have to go and teach the class. Uh, we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall a few questions. I'm going to only ask you one of them. You've answered it before, but I would be curious as to where you stand today. What is your favorite part of your faith? Uh, oh, that's a good question. My favorite part of my faith, I don't know about the favorite, but uh, it's uh, it's tradition. You know, it's tradition. I... Um, uh, this is kind of funny, but I was listening to uh, a podcast episode. This is really kind of out there, but I'll, I'll pull it back. 
this social scientist wrote a book on the backside, right? The butt, like mm -hmm. human, you know, the butt. And what she was trying to show is how this developed as a, a part of the body that, um, that people used to either demonize people, becomes racial, mm -hmm. or as a sign of beauty and how over the last two centuries that have ebbed and flowed. Anyway, there's a, there's a part in the, this interview where she says, my research has convinced me that our body carries the history of humankind, you know, through evolution, whatever, the history of our family and the history of our own lives. That to me, I mentioned that because that to me was the most profound thing I've heard in years. Like that really pounded me because we were really walking around carrying the genes of our parents, the history of our family. Every scar has a story of our own life. And I think it hit me so hard because that is a, a tradition that's going back centuries, millennia, like history. And we're like a walking fossil. My faith is a similar thing. It's, it's really carrying on generation after generation of what people have, what has meant something to them. Even if we think church is boring, even if we think the hymns are boring or what, whatever it is, you know, this is a tradition. This is a, a legacy, just like our bodies that was so impactful for me. This whole faith tradition has a story to tell. And so we, I pull it in as much as I can and, and read and adopt and try to perpetuate what our you know, forefathers and mothers did. I love it. Hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall.